check two. All right, here we go. This is the QTR podcast. How the hell is everybody? Today is October 22nd, 21st. I don't know. And who cares? Welcome to the show. That's about as organized as we're going to get. I got the week right. I got the month right. I'm not sure what else you people want from me. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out my kind patrons that keep this podcast going, and then I am going to give you the rules for today's podcast, and we will be well on our merry way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my friends over at JM Bullion. They are at my exclusive gold and silver provider. It is the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. I haven't bought gold or silver bullion anywhere else in years. I am very happy with the service that they give. They've been in business for nearly a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales, and QTR podcast listeners have their own sales rep there, the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. Shoot her an email. She will help you with anything you need. Inventory, pricing, shipping, all of the questions you may have if you've never bought bullion before. Regardless, I've done the work for you. I love using JM Bullion, and I think that you will too. They always have a uh, great inventory. They always turn around my orders quickly. Their link is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sanglucci Steam Room. The Sanglucci Steam Room, and I think the Sanglucci Master Course is now underway, but you can double check. The link to that is in my podcast description. If you missed it, you missed it. I don't know what to tell you. It's an incredible value. Uh, something like a week's worth of courses, but I think that that has already started because Lucci is now back from Vegas where he went for the uh, Traders for a Cause thing that I was not uh, able to attend this year, unfortunately. I missed going to the Budweiser Beer Park and putting down a few with John Najarian, one of my favorite things to do, looking across the strip at the Bellagio until uh, all of a sudden you see two Bellagios, and that means that you've been drinking quite a bit. All right the hell was I saying? Oh, check out the Steam Room. Why? Because it's one of the most innovative and best pieces of software used to help track options flow, to help you read uh, read tape, to help you understand the psychology of the markets. Lucci and Charlie Bathgate have been doing this, and Wall Street Jesus have been doing this for like a decade. I met these guys. As soon as I started in the markets, they've become my friends because they're honest people, and they know their shit, and they're fun to hang around with, and they uh, it's easy for me to recommend them to you because the Steam Room is a beautiful piece of software that can pay for itself if you don't use it like a herb. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro, my brother George Gammon, frequent podcast guest, all-around smart guy who has incidentally, for some reason, stopped inviting me on his podcast. Totally understand, George. That's what happens when you blow past me at 12,000 miles an hour on the podcast highway. It's okay. It's all right. You can say it. It's no big deal. You want to have guys like Jim Rickards on and like famous people on now. You can't be slumming it with the guy that's cursing and doesn't really know what he's talking about. Regardless, George, I still love you. And I still am on your Rebel Capitalist Pro platform all the time. George has paired with Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh, guys like Brent Johnson, to help bring you some of the best understanding of how to build and create wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central bankers than anybody's going to do. He's got wonderful wonderful forums that I check in with almost daily. They do live Q&A several times a week. George is putting out a disgusting amount of content, and it's really a great place to learn. If you want to learn like the inner workings of how quantitative easing really works, George's channel is a great place to do that. So it's a place where you can actually get an education instead of uh, like an episode of Beavis and Butthead, which is really more of what my podcast is geared towards. 
Do we have the Emmy yet, folks? That is my question. Rebel Capitalist Pro, the link to that is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Doomberg. Doomberg, one of my favorite new sub stacks to read. I love the guys at Doomberg. They take a skeptical approach to the markets. It is a fun read. We are aligned in our love of uranium, which I will talk about uh, today for a minute. Um, but it's a free Substack to read, so why the hell wouldn't you sign up? Unlike my stupid Substack, where you have to be a subscriber, his is free. So sign up for the free one and ignore mine, and life will be good, and you will keep more money in your pockets. Doomberg, the link to that is in my podcast description. I also want to shout out, hello, stalling for time. Look at me change, the old website. There we go. I also want to shout out my friends over at Corvus Gold, longtime supporters at Corvus Gold. I love you guys. Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer. I'm working on getting an interview with him right now because I have a lot of questions for him. Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul, and then we have... Hello, our patrons, the people in the trenches with me, like Benjamin Krogh, Victor Ramirez, Steve Gould, Howard, John Roberts, David Driesen, Nomad, Above and Beyond, Brian Nemich, Gregory Horn, thank you so much for your continued support. How about John Ritchie? Thank you for checking in on Patreon. Philip McCrevis is still in the house. I appreciate you very much, brother or sister or sister. Brad Nethis. Brad Nesseth, thank you. Mr. Quinn Levin, what's going on, brother? Thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast. I wouldn't support me, but I think it's nice that you guys do. Matthew Allen and Bordoni, thank you, my friends. Hot Butter, still in the house, along with Alex Geyser, Jess DeWayne, and Kyle Funk. Thank you guys for your continued support and some other people that have been with me for a while, like Andrew Mitchell, thank you. Wayne Barger, Shane Yeakley, thank you, my dear friend i'll have beers with all of you and how about one more Mm, ed campbell thank you you have a nice easy name so i don't have to worry about this other one next to it that i can't pronounce gotta give yourself a break sometimes folks this podcast has a two drink minimum i am not an investment advisor i hold no licenses no registrations with finma or the sec none of this is financial advice this is just open discussion about things that i find interesting Please do not follow any of my advice or the advice of my guests. Rate this podcast one star on the iTunes store so as to help other people avoid my horrible advice. That's my advice to you. And I also have the world's worst blog. It's called Fringe Finance. If if you're interested in it, the link to that is also in my podcast description. Probably not worth the subscription, but it's a great way to support me. And I'm going to talk about some of the things that I've been writing on there today, not as a means of advertising, but because I find them interesting interesting. So there's a lot I want to talk about. I want to lead our discussion today by talking about something I wrote about on my blog on October 11th, and that was the idea that the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to be investigating Archegos Capital, which of course was Bill Huang's uh, hedge fund that blew up spectacularly like uh, it imploded like a dying star in front of the entire markets to the tune of like $60 billion worth of fucking margin calls. It was really a sight to behold because you saw all these crap names all going down at the same time. And I remember just watching it during the day, like either, you know, somebody had figured out that companies like GSX were, you know, that the allegations being made by short sellers of those companies were actually true or something crazy was going on, but you were watching all these shit companies 
And companies that had been alleged to be frauds by short sellers, like GSX, like IQ, all getting smashed at the same time, and nobody really knew what the hell it was. And it turns out what it was was these companies didn't really have a bid to begin with, and they were potentially being manipulated upwards by purchases of call options in the name. And, you know, none of this, don't quote me on any of this and do your own research, but I think what may have been happening was that Arch Egos was buying uh, equity positions in some of these names and then through uh, these exotic swaps and different types of derivatives that I'm not intimately familiar with were forcing uh, market makers to delta hedge the stock higher, to buy shares to uh, hedge essentially against exposure that comes from being the counterparty on these derivative trades. And so, um, in other words, it, what that means is just kind of gaming the system a little bit, creating a little bit of a gamma squeeze. And that's what it appeared to be. Um, it appeared that, you know, the stocks were all falling because maybe there wasn't an actual bid underneath them to begin with. And even though there was this mass liquidation during the day, or the couple of days when Archigos blew up, you would have to think that if there was some type of a legitimate bid under those names, that maybe it would have stepped in before, you know, a company like Viacom fell, mm, I don't know, like fucking 50% in like 24 hours or whatever happened. You know, because Viacom isn't Chinese crap. Viacom is a U.S. listed dividend paying company, you know, with streaming prospects just like Netflix. But what the crash in that name kind of showed you was that maybe there wasn't really a bid there to begin with, and instead you had this giant air pocket that may have been created by kind of goofing around in the derivatives market. And of course, all of that is speculation. So when the headline broke that the SEC was going to be launching an investigation into market manipulation uh, on behalf of Archegos, a lot of people kind of dryly noted and made these tongue-in-cheek comments like, oh, well, now you show up, right? Now that the whole thing has blown up, now the SEC is coming in to kind of sift through the wreckage. But I actually think that what the SEC is going to be doing here, it could actually be far more important than most people think. Because the examination into market manipulation, if it reveals that what was happening was uh, Archigos was kind of manipulating these stocks through the derivatives market, um, that could obviously put a lot of other people that may be using this as a strategy unnoticed. But more importantly, it could get that tactic out there. I mean, I remember tweeting a year ago or two years ago during one of these nonsense congressional hearings where, you know, Maxine Waters mixes up revenue and profit and doesn't know the difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy. But I was saying, you know, during one of those horrifyingly lobotomizing um, conferences or question and answer sessions, whatever the fuck you want to call them, that we would really do better to educate Congress on what a gamma squeeze is. Now, of course, that's a little bit of hyperbole, but it actually makes some sense, right? Because in my opinion... That's how I believe a lot of the manipulation is happening. And, you know, in months subsequent to that, we got 
all of these kind of tacit admissions of that happening, specifically, you know, SoftBank and Goldman Sachs and names like Tesla and in the NASDAQ. And so it kind of explained the NASDAQ's meteoric move higher uh, after the uh, after COVID, that crash in March 2020. And perhaps it explains Tesla Tesla's move higher between December 2019 and, you know, now, where essentially it has like 11x'd or something since then. And today it's near its all-time highs. So how does that happen? Has, has there been insane fundamental changes at the company that would warrant a 10x in the stock's valuation? No. It just kind of wound up going higher. And there happened to be all this interesting call buying in the options market in the name, way out of the money. Uh, long dated call buying that you know I've been pointing out for a while. So this is something that I wrote about uh, on my blog October 11th, and I wrote that I can't help but wonder if this SEC investigation into manipulation uh, could answer some of these questions that I've had about Tesla's mysterious and meteoric rise uh, throughout 2020. And of course, first paragraph I find a fucking typo in my article that's been up for a week. This is why it's not even worth subscribing to my blog, because I'm just a fucking mess. All right, now I fixed that for anybody that cares to read this weak old article that no one is going to read. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I said back during the d- 2020 that the call buying in Tesla looked odd, right? So here's a tweet from January 29th, 2020. We're talking almost two years ago where I wrote, I can't help but think about all the long-dated Tesla calls, which strikes like 750 and 800 that were bought in size over the last three months. No one cares what Tesla had to rig to make the headline numbers. Uh, and then in April 2020, I said, this is what I mean when I talk about insanely ridiculous call buying, lighting the fuse on Tesla moves. Something's up. I've watched too much tape to think that this is all natural. Right. So if you go and look at a chart of Tesla, you'll see it made a, you know, it went parabolic essentially in 2019 at a time where really the company wasn't doing anything special. I mean, it had turned a profit, but it was doing so through the sale of regulatory credits. So it wasn't like there was some giant paradigm shift uh, and the market woke up and said, wow, this is, you know, 90 percent undervalued this company. We need to uh, or 99 percent undervalued. Right. We need to go ahead and reprice this equity immediately. No, it was. The same situation over and over. Large chunk of call buying, the equity moves up higher. A couple days later, large chunk of call buying, the equity moves up higher. And that is, of course, delta hedging. Those are forced buys by counterparties on the options for the most part. And again, I'm not a financial expert, so don't take my advice. I said in December 2020, you know, people tell me I'm an idiot for entertaining the idea that Tesla stock could be manipulated. And if you look in my article, I posted this chart where basically right at the beginning, you know, Tesla trades in a straight line from 2013 to 2020. And then all of a sudden it goes parabolic. You know, it goes up seven, eight, nine times uh, over the course of a year. Like all of Tesla's major gains came during 2020. I think the stock was up something like 700% in that year. And that's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. You know, we went from the company having a $60 billion market cap in 2019 to Elon Musk personally having a $200 billion net worth a year later. Him personally, his share of the company was is worth three or four times the entire company's market cap just a year earlier. And that's just not natural. There's something wrong about that. So when I noticed these weird sell-offs 
in you know Viacom and Discovery and GSX, and then we finally found out that you know Huang had lost eight billion dollars in ten days uh, when Archigos reportedly defaulted on margin calls, uh, and then we found out that Archigos had ties to Kathy Wood. He seeded Ark Invest. Apparently, we found out in May of 2021. Uh, you know. There's a quote from Kathy Wood where he sh- where she says, uh, sorry, he, she, there's no genders anymore anyways, where she said, I know Bill Huang. I met him through church. We were both advisors to the financial services ministry. That was in 2013. And on our way back from that event, we were exchanging stock ideas back then. This she said uh, to CNBC in May. Then she said, Bill was very intrigued with the stocks we were interested in. He was just beginning to learn about them. Which is very interesting because now what the SEC, you know, this is why this market manipulation investigation isn't just going to be some perfunctory, uh, you know, thing where they just file a complaint and then there's an officer or director bar. Because we may unearth some interesting goings on in the trading records between ARK Invest and Archegos. And I'm not saying there's anything there. But I'm saying if we wanted to kind of go to where common sense would dictate would be the first place, you know, remember when the uh, coronavirus popped up in the Wuhan seafood market? It's like, well, what's the first place we would want to look? Oh, look at that over there, over the old horizon. What is that? That's a fucking level four bio lab. All right, we'll start there. Why? Because that's what common sense says. And this is kind of like the same thing, right? The whole market has just been attributing this rise up in Tesla to just, hey, you know, Elon's executing. Like, yeah, okay, that's why stocks go up 10x in a year. Sure. But really, the most common sense place to look if you were to try to figure out if something else was going on would be in the trading records of Archegos. And now we're going to find out, hopefully, whether or not Archegos was in the Tesla options market. And that would certainly be something interesting. Then, from there, if the SEC wanted to, they could perhaps start to look at whether or not there are any ties to ARC. And I'm not saying that there are. I'm just saying that it has been reported that these two asset managers know each other. One appears to have blown up his fund after uh, goosing the prices of his underlying equities higher through derivatives. And the other one has been the beneficiary of, to me, what appears to be a very unnatural move higher in Tesla throughout that same course of time. So would we want to know if there's anything there? Yes. Is it possible there's nothing there? Yes. That's probably the likely scenario. Maybe there is nothing there at all, and this is all just unfounded. But SEC subpoenas could turn up some of the things that we don't have access to. And that is why I wrote this piece and why I am specifically interested in what everybody else seems to be writing off as just a run-of-the-mill SEC market manipulation case, right? Reuters said the securities regulator is probing the firm's trading activity, including whether it concealed the size of its bets on public companies, according to the report. Authorities are also scrutinizing whether Archigos bought multiple stakes in the same companies across several banks, to avoid triggering, triggering public disclosure rules, the report added. And then I just write, of notes specifically, I'd be interested if Wang ever transacted in Tesla shares or options. And that is why I am 
interests the, uh, nice job, dickhead, speak English. That is why I am anxiously awaiting the results of this SEC market manipulation investigation, which will probably take some time. So we will touch back on that. When you zoom out from there, you obviously have the question of whether or not there is an air pocket in Tesla shares, similar to the way that there is an air pocket or there was an air pocket in shares of, you know, GSX or Discovery or Viacom or some of the other names that Huang was involved in. Uh, and so what I'd be interested in knowing is, you know, is there going to be a, a point where if Tesla shares sell off, all of a sudden somebody will sneeze the wrong way and the stock will lose 30% despite, you know, having a trillion dollar valuation. Like, is it possible for there to be that big of an air pocket where the bid just falls out from underneath the stock, similar to the way that we saw in some of these other names? And then, you know, looking out even further from that, the question is whether or not there is a similar air pocket in the NASDAQ, right? Because you you had all of this admitted uh, gamma squeeze type activity in the NASDAQ <clears throat> between big players like SoftBank and Goldman after the pandemic uh, crash. And so you have to wonder if there's another level two on the NASDAQ uh, where something like that similarly could happen. But, you know, it's, I'm not even sure that we'll ever get to that point or we'll ever be able to experience it, even if there is uh, in both names, because people, I think, may just be assuming that this is the levels that the market has legitimately priced these equities at, which of course is hilarious because they are extraordinarily expensive, um, but that just may be the case. And so it may just wind up getting swept under the rug. I also wanted to talk today about the fucking mainstream media and how badly they have fucked up on two different stories, uh, both of which I wrote about on my blog, Fringe Finance. I was watching Larry Elder do an interview the other day, I guess after he had just written his book, Dear Father, Dear Son, and uh, I wish I could find the interview, but he mentions the name of the book like 15 times in the course of like a three-minute interview. And they'd be like, all right, Larry, well, what do you think about uh, breakfast this morning? He'd be like, as I say in my book, dear father, dear son, I like eggs, I like bacon, and I will eat waffles occasionally with syrup. Well, that's interesting, Larry, but do you worry about cholesterol? As is noted in my book, dear father, dear son, cholesterol is you know, more of an HDL problem and not an LDL problem. Oh, thanks so much, Larry. You have a good day, uh, Larry. Thanks for coming on. As I say in my book, dear father, dear son, it was great talking to you today. <laughs> I was like, this motherfucker knows how to promote a book, man. I like Larry Elder. He keeps uh, telling me no when I ask him to come on the podcast. And then I asked him for a, a written interview while he was doing his campaign for uh, recall governor of California. And he transferred me to his communications director who proceeded to ignore me. So that's okay, Larry. I still love you, even though uh, you don't apparently have any interest in coming on my show. But that's okay. You know, I think you're probably a level of class higher than I am, so I'm not really worried about it. Kind of understand. But if you got some time on your hands, dude, and you want to come on, you're more than welcome now. Let's talk about how the mainstream media has just fucked up royally. Uh, the first is with the Hunter Biden laptop story, and then I want to circle back and talk about this stupid, dumbass coverage that the media gave of the uh, Joe Rogan ivermectin story and how he eventually got his, uh, you know, uh, his apology, uh, essentially, from Sanjay Gupta, who came on his podcast 
let's talk about the the Hunter Biden story real quick. You know, I just I feel like a story like this that gets swept under the rug at a time where it could be impactful needs to be revisited in a way that reminds people just how big of a deal this would have been at the time. Leading into the election, okay, it's revealed that a laptop turns up. And on the laptop, right, one of the key issues of the 2020 election is China and how we're going to deal with China. Trump wants to play hardball. Biden says, oh, I can play hardball too. Trump has kind of set this tone. He's not going to take any shit from China. Biden says, oh, I can keep that up. And hey, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a tough guy too. I wear aviator shades, whatever. And so leading into the election, a laptop turns up that contains, among other things, among other things, information on Joe Biden's son's business dealings in China where Joe Biden is getting a cut of the proceeds, right? The laptop essentially contains proof that Hunter Biden sold his influence to China while Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. That's kind of a big deal. Now, remember the whole Steele dossier thing? And by the way, I'm not like 100% convinced the Steele dossier is completely untruthful, but certainly it's been discredited for the most part. Uh, but, you know, there may be some things in there. I'd be like, look, you gave me two-to-one odds on whether or not Trump ever got a hooker while he was in Russia. I mean, uh, I'm going to put money on that. I mean, that's 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 a likely scenario. That's like saying, did Trump breathe air while he was in Russia? It's like, yeah, he's not underwater breathing fucking H2O, you know, <laughs> because he's in Russia. You know, guy that goes out and, you know, has a history of marrying Eastern European models. Like, what the hell else would he be doing in Russia? And I'm not condoning that, by the way. I'm just saying. You know, there's some things that if in that dossier turned out to be true, I wouldn't be surprised. Regardless, you have leverage of other sorts with Biden because the son is also doing the global hooker and cocaine tour uh, as evidenced by photos of him with his wang hanging out, uh, walking around various hotel rooms, uh, enjoying uh, crack pipes and naked women. Uh, all over the world, doing the full United Nations tour. I'm sure it was written off on some tax receipt somewhere as, you know, U.S. ambassador trip to uh, <laughs> to the Netherlands, you know, checking out the uh, red light district, U.S.-Netherlands uh, relations, okay, or where, where uh, wherever he was. The point is that this laptop comes out in the midst of peak campaign season. And then you have this fucking guy, Tony Bobolinsky, right, who wants to come forth and be a whistleblower. And the only people that reported on this story were the New York Post and Fox News. Now, not only were they the only two outlets to report on this story, right? We're talking about an issue of national security. You had one party that spent Trump's entire presidency trying to make the argument that he was being influenced unfairly uh, by, you know, Russia, because he had all, you know, Russia had all this leverage on him and he had all these business dealings in Russia. Well, here's proof that Joe Biden has actual business dealings in China. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to talk about foreign influence anymore. Isn't that fucking convenient how that happens? 
<laughs> so this is what I wrote about on October 14th, uh, where Tony Bobolinsky uh, came forward and went on Tucker Carlson to talk about these business dealings because it was up in the air as to whether or not they were true. And he basically said, look, I'm, I'm Hunter Biden's former business partner. This shit is true. Uh, you know, the big guy in the documents is Joe Biden that he's talking about. He was actually getting a monetary cut. Um, and so when you step back and objectively examine the issue of Joe Biden's business dealings in China, as I wrote, it appeared that he was the one actually engaged in the types of conflict of interest that his party spent four years accusing President Trump of. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so you know that the media has an agenda because all of the outlets that were salivating over the idea of the Russian collusion story, and please go back and treat yourself to one of those YouTube videos where it's just, you know, 10 minutes of news anchors talking, well, this is the bomb. The bomb has dropped on Trump. Trump won't get back from this one. Has the final bomb dropped on Trump? Is there proof of Russian collusion? Over and over and over and over and over. And they did it for like a year straight. And everybody was saying, oh, it's Mueller time. Let's see the results of the Mueller report. And what happened? Mueller came out and said there was nothing. There was nothing. But now all of these same media outlets that got whipped up into this, you know, patriotic frenzy all of a sudden, this, this same fucking news networks that won't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, won't, uh, won't sing the national anthem at a baseball game because it's somehow offensive to them, are all of a sudden worried about, you know, foreign interest in the U.S. But now they won't come forward and look when their own candidate, you know, when there's potential proof that their own candidate is dealing in, in the same type of foreign influence that they were accusing Trump of. So, you know, the New York Post broke what really should have been a Pulitzer-worthy story that Biden's son had this laptop filled with all this incriminating evidence. Uh, but instead, the story was blackballed uh, in the mainstream media and was talked about nowhere other than conservative news outlets. And not only that, by the way, not only that, you were banned from social media if you talked about it. Those posts were not allowed. Facebook, Google, they wouldn't let you talk about it. They just took it off as though it never happened. And guess what? Not unlike the lab leak theory, motherfuckers, it's turning out to look like that was closer to the truth than the stupid-ass narrative that you guys were peddling the entire time. Coverage at the time looked like Politico writing a headline that said, quote, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo. Dozens of former intel officials say, and the subheading to that is more than 50 former intelligence officials signed a letter casting doubt on the provenance of a New York Post story on the former vice president's son. Oh, OK. So dozens of officials of intel officials have come out and said it's just more Russian disinformation. Right. They're just pointing to Russia again. And then the story was pretty much literally laughed off of television uh, as some kind of conspiracy theory. So. After, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter limited sharing the New York Post story about Joe Biden, they literally limit. I mean, if this isn't interference in an election. I don't know what is. They wouldn't let you post about it. They wouldn't let you post about it. But then all of a sudden something funny happened, as I wrote. Joe Biden got elected president and several months later, Politico reported that some parts of the laptop, including emails at the center of the controversy, were credible. Ben, and this is what political write, Politico writes now that Biden is elected. 
Ben Schreckinger's The Bidens Inside the First Family's 50-Year Rise to Power out today finds evidence that some of the purported Hunter Biden laptop material is genuine, including two emails at the center of last October's controversy, which of course doesn't matter now because Biden has been elected. A person who had independent access to Hunter Biden's emails confirmed that he did receive a 2015 email from a Ukrainian businessman thanking him for the chance to meet Joe Biden. The same goes for a 2017 email in which a proposed equity breakdown of a venture with Chinese energy executives includes the line, 10 held by H for the big guy. So, ladies and gentlemen, what's my beef? My beef isn't that, you know, CNN or MSNBC spun the story to be a little bit more favorable to Joe Biden. Because look, in an election season, going into an election, this story is a huge deal. It's a Pulitzer-worthy story, still, in my opinion. It's not that they spun it, it's that they never mentioned it. They never mentioned it. I mean, how bad is that when you just ignore that it's out there? So I wrote, for a party that is always crowing about transparency and democracy, and a party that constantly labored about the importance of freedom of press during the entire Trump administration, the liberal media did an abhorrent job of missing what would have objectively been an earth-shattering story ahead of the election. And that tells you everything you need to know about the journalistic integrity of large media outlets in the country right now. Because again, the agenda could have just meant that, you know, CNN covering the story with a little bit more of a favorable spin for Biden. But it shouldn't mean totally ignoring the story ahead of an election. And the worst part is that, you know, social media... They wouldn't even let you post about it. They wouldn't even let you discuss it. You know, I wrote in the introduction to my blog, you know, I put stuff out there that's on the fringe because I'd much rather have it out there and be wrong so that it can catalyze discussion than worry about whether or not I'm like, oh, tiptoeing around. Are these facts convenient for people or is this part of the narrative officially yet? That's what the whole point of being on the fringe is, right? And so in this instance, you weren't even allowed to discuss it. And this was really the second big example of the mainstream media kind of fucking up the works on purpose over the last couple of weeks. Because, look, the Joe Rogan, Ivan Mackton story, which I've talked about on my podcast in a number of interviews a couple of times. For those of you that don't know it, Joe Rogan got COVID. He took Ivan Mackton along with monoclonal antibodies and a bunch of other stuff. And all of a sudden that, you know, and he got better. And that turned into a headline on CNN that said Joe Rogan is taking horse paste. Now, many of my listeners know already, I'm sure, that ivermectin is a drug that has been administered and prescribed billions of times or hundreds of millions of times to humans uh, for river blindness. Uh, You know, it has shown effectiveness as an antiviral. It has uh, but it's COVID. It has it doesn't have a ton of clinical data showing that it's been effective uh, in COVID, but there is anecdotal evidence that it works. And essentially the argument is that because it's safe and has been proven to be safe, well, why aren't we allowed to use it or at least try to take it seriously as a potential method uh, of helping COVID? 
Uh, and so, you know, it, be, it becomes a call option at that point, becomes a, a, a no-lose situation for the most part um, if people want to take ivermectin and try it, uh, even though the data may not be there. Uh, it is also used as a dewormer in, uh, for veterinary use uh, in horses, but that is separate from the person, the human dosage. And so when this story came about, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, it was being covered hysterically by the media as Joe Rogan taking horse paste. And many people know what these headlines look like. NBC News, Joe Rogan says he has COVID, took widely discredited drug ivermectin. Hollywood Reporter, Joe Rogan says he tested positive for COVID-19, takes unproven horse dewormer. The Guardian, U.S. podcast star Joe Rogan taking deworming drug ivermectin. CBS News, I got COVID. Joe Rogan says he's using ivermectin, an unproven anti-parasite drug, for treatment. NPR, the podcast host Joe Rogan is taking a cocktail of unproven treatments, including ivermectin, a deworming drug for cows that the FDA warns people should not ingest. Yes, the problem with all of these descriptions is they're completely false and misleading. It's not widely discredited. I mean, while it was true that it was discredited uh, for COVID specifically, or there's not enough data yet, the drug itself isn't widely discredited. It's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. And the Hollywood Reporter saying it's an unproven horse dewormer. It's a matter of semantics. When dosed properly, the drug is proven as a horse dewormer, not an unproven horse dewormer, but it's also a human drug too. It's been dosed and prescribed to humans. The illusion in the headline is that it's you know unproven for COVID, uh, but you know, but that Rogan is also taking the horse version of the drug, which of course he wasn't. So it's just a word salad of bullshit and nonsense from the media. Well, Joe Rogan, you know, when he was talking to Tom Segura, I think, uh, you know, threatened to sue CNN, and then eventually Sanjay Gupta, who was the resident doctor at CNN, came on Rogan's podcast uh, last week, and Rogan just called him out on it. And he said to him, hey, does it bother you that the news network you work for out and out lied? They outright lied about me me taking horse dewormer. And Gupta says they shouldn't have done that. And Rogan says, well, why'd they do it? And Gupta's like, ah, I don't know. It's like, all right, well, if you don't know, who knows at your network? You're the doctor, right? You're the resident doctor. And then, of course, Don Lemon fucking takes to the air to do damage control, this fucking guy, brings Sanjay Gupta on, uh, you know, and makes these, uh, has this, like, snide and dismissive attitude toward many of Rogan's points and denies ever calling ivermectin horse dewormer. Yet if you look at my article, I found one of the the on-screen Chirons that shows Don Lemon tonight with a little fucking thing on the screen underneath him that says Joe Rogan announces he has COVID, is taking horse dewormer ivermectin. It's like you fucking liars. You fucking liars. You're just straight up liars. They just straight up lied. They took the facts and they they didn't even twist them. They just lied. They lied and said he was taking the veterinary version of the drug when they fucking knew that he wasn't. And then this imbecile, Don Lemon, who, by the way, 
don't know if you ever watched this guy. I, like, a couple years back, I watched him on New Year's Eve. He does the thing wherever, and they were like had him at his home. Like, Don Lemon at home. Here's Don Lemon baking a cake. Oh, here's Don Lemon in his kitchen. He took like two shots of tequila and couldn't fucking stand up. All right? Let me give you a little advice, Don Lemon. If you can't hold your fucking liquor, maybe you shouldn't be drinking tequila on live television. That's the first thing, all right? And the second thing is, you got to do a little bit better than that, all right? You want to be uh, Mr. Tough Guy drinker? You can't get leveled off two shots of fucking Espolone uh, in your own kitchen. Try to hold your shit together uh, this New Year's Eve when you're doing a little bit more drinking. All right, Don? Jesus Christ. Anyways, the guy just fucking lies. He's like, oh, I didn't say that. I got a photo of it right here. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at this stupid-ass Chiron right here. Don's take. That's the name of the thing. Don's take. Like, oh, everybody's just sitting around waiting until 9 p.m. so we could hear what... What Don's take on the situation is. And the worst part is there's actually people that do that. I can't wait to see what Don Lemon thinks about it. Don's take. Joe Rogan announces he has COVID, is taking horse dewormer ivermectin with his, like, fucking pompous attitude on there. Probably like, I don't know what's what's wrong with these people. These people on the right are lunatics. It's like, no, you're just lying. You're incapable of understanding the nuance of what's going on. Either that, either you don't have the intelligence necessary to understand the nuance, or you just choose to pick the worst-looking headline regardless of the facts and put it out there. So the mainstream media has fucked up big time uh, as it comes to the Hunter Biden laptop story and the Joe Rogan ivermectin story, two things that I spoke out about on when they happened that are uh, you know a big deal and two huge examples Never mind the fact you look, what do you want to talk about? Social media censorship? You couldn't even talk about the lab leak theory without being banned from social media. They banned Zero Hedge from social media. Banned him for even bringing it up. Well, what happened now? Well, it turns out to be the leading hypothesis now of what happened in Wuhan. Oh, all right. Now I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about my uranium bull case. Um, other than, you know, look, I'd love to give you my macro take on today's show, but the point is. You know, what do you want to hear about? You want to hear about this week's non-farm payrolls number? The macro data doesn't fucking matter, so there's no point in trying to analyze it. I mean, re- the only analysis that's pertinent to the market right now is at what point QE is going to stop working. That's it. That's the million-dollar question because stocks are going to go up until that point, and then they're going to go down, and nothing else matters. Nothing matters. The fucking price of gold doesn't matter. The macroeconomic data doesn't matter. CPI doesn't matter. You know, the beige book doesn't matter. Uh, Housing starts don't matter. Just throw a dart and pick a macroeconomic indicator, and it doesn't really matter. So what can I do? I could sit here and try to analyze, you know, what the non-farm payrolls number. And God bless Peter Schiff. I fucking love the guy. It's like one of my favorite podcasts. But, you know, he starts every show by saying the Dow was up 103 points today. And, you know, this morning, uh, you know, PPI was supposed to be 0.6%, and it came in at 0.7, higher than expectations. And then there's this big to-do about, like, oh, what this means, and, you know, they had raised it already, and to go higher than that is, uh, you know, it's just, and it's like, yeah, you know, Peter's 100% right, too. If you examine all this stuff in a vacuum, every single thing that guy says about macro data is right. But I fear that none of it matters. So to try and give you, you know, uh, my thought process on macro right now, 
is is fruitless. There's no point because I'm clueless too. You know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I know what the hell's going on. Peter's very confident gold is going to go up. You know, I'm like, I think it's going to go up too over time. But like, I'm as in the dark as everybody else. You know, I listen to George Gammon's podcast to try to figure out what the fuck is going on, just like everybody else. You know, I, I, I really don't know. All I know is we're in a precarious position. Now, the country's in a very precarious position where prices are rising. We don't produce anything in the country anymore. We are heavily reliant on being able to print in order to maintain our current quality of life. And uh, and that cannot last forever. And as a matter of fact, I didn't plan on talking about this, but I wrote an article uh, on my blog a couple of days ago called The Two Fallacies That Will Devastate the U.S. Are Playing Out Right in Front of Our Eyes. This was from October 13th. And, uh, you know, the first fallacy is the idea that we can print the difference between what we're spending and what we're collecting in tax receipts. There may not be a 24 months in our country's history where this has been on display more so than the last two years. Right. So we're spending our fiscal policies out of control, our monetary policies out of control. And again, the country is in this precarious position because we have to import everything. And so we have to we're, we are just, you know, it's everybody in the country just leaning on the dollar holding up. And can it hold up forever? Like, oh, I don't fucking know. You know, and at the same time, we're trying to micromanage all parts of the economy. The, uh, you know, indicator of this is Biden not being able to grasp the fact that oil prices are going up despite printing trillions of dollars and shuttering oil pipeline projects. You know, the point is that our proposed solutions as a nation printing money and trying to micromanage the economy, they demonstrate that we have little to no grasp of the trajectory that we're on. And no matter how many jokes I make about the trillion dollar coin idea, the fact of the matter is that the idea would put us on the receiving end not just of scorn and ridicule by other countries, but also the consequences that would come with such devastatingly flawed thinking. Devastatingly flawed. We're on a slippery slope in the wrong direction. That's my macro analysis. All right, how and when and why it's all going to happen, I don't know. I don't want to try to give you specifics. Oh, today's Thursday. If the PPI comes in one basis point higher tomorrow, then that's going to see a... I'm sorry, I put myself to sleep. I really have no fucking clue. The point is, I like uranium. Let's talk about that. Why do I like uranium? Because uranium is uh, obviously a key component if you are an advocate for nuclear power. So let's go through the uranium bull case real quick, and then I'll talk about what's new there. Uh, I wrote about uranium like as soon as I started my blog. I, I've been long uranium for a while, and, and the, the idea behind uranium is that the optics of the Fukushima disaster will eventually go past us and people will start to realize that nuclear power is a very safe and very carbon-free, uh, environmentally friendly way to generate a shitload of power, right? Windmills and solar are nice, uh, but they don't fucking work all the time, you know? And, and it sounds stupid. I know when Donald Trump's like, well, it'll work if the wind's not blowing. And people are like, ah, that guy doesn't know shit. But actually the truth is, it doesn't work if the wind's not blowing. I just read an article about windmills in upstate New York where, like, you know, the wind stopped blowing and they don't have electricity. So, <laughs> you know, kind of a rudimentary analysis of things, but also very true. You know, we can't have solar if the sun just burns out. Also true. Probably won't happen, but thank you for the rudimentary analysis. 
nuclear is interesting because it provides a shitload of power. And when it's done properly, it can be extraordinarily safe. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the fallout from things like Fukushima and Chernobyl, they just weigh on people's minds. And, you know, instead of like coal that just quietly, you know, kills people from lung diseases and things like that that are just admitted to the hospital and nobody really hears the stories about it because it doesn't happen en masse and it's not one big giant blow up. Uh, you know, a nuclear meltdown is a huge story and it just sounds fucking bad. You know, nuclear meltdown. You envision the zombie apocalypse and, you know, playing Duke Nukem 3D, right? Just kind of like wandering around in this crazy Blade Runner type world where all the colors are inverted and there's green, you know, radioactive goo laying all over the place. But the fact of the matter is nuclear is actually very clean and it is very safe and it generates a shitload of power. And so then the question becomes, when is the, you know, and I made this Venn diagram, right? When we're going to figure out that adoption of nuclear is going to happen. You have all these assholes on the right with unrealistic energy expectations. They think, all right, well, we're going to burn coal forever, right? And then you have all these assholes on the left that also have uh, unrealistic energy expectations. They think you can put one windmill in a field and that's going to power the United States, uh, both people are wrong. You know, I can't believe we're talking about coal in the year 2021. You know, you'd think we'd moved on from coal. I don't want to put coal people out of work. You know, clean coal, folks. I'm talking about clean coal. We take the coal and we clean it. Not just coal, you know, but all of these archaic ways of generating power, right? Coal is still huge in China because they don't really care what the rest of the world thinks. Uh... And I actually made the case that I think nuclear would be adopted in China relatively quickly, too. And I'll talk about that in a section uh, in a second. But we have to move away from coal and we can't rely on one windmill in a field. So it's like, what is the compromise? What's the happy medium? And I think that people will eventually realize, even the ESG people will realize that nuclear kind of meets the criteria. What do the people on the right want? They want power generation. Right. That's mostly why. And they want jobs. They want power generation and jobs. That's what they're advocating for when they advocate for coal. So you can keep those jobs and you can have the power generation with nuclear. And what do the people on the left want? They want clean energy and nuclear is clean energy. They just have to kind of meet in the middle and figure it out. So, you know, I had made the case when I started writing about uranium that I thought the price would rise not only because Sprott, their uranium trust, is essentially cornering the market right now, they're buying a shitload of uranium in what is a, a, you know, a very illiquid uh, spot market for uranium. So most of these power plants have these long-term contracts. There's not a lot of people in there trading uranium uh, on the spot market. But uh, Sprott has gone in and done so. And I was like, okay, well, now we have a market participant that seems like it wants to suck up uh, you know, a lot of excess uranium that's out there. The other part of the thesis was that countries would eventually start to realize that nuclear would be the next way to go. And that has actually started to happen faster than I thought that it would. Um, and so this week I wrote about five different countries that have all announced intentions to one way or another incorporate nuclear the most important of which I think was the United Kingdom, where the Financial Times reported that nuclear power would be, quote, at the heart 
of Britain's strategy for net zero carbon emissions by 2050, which I thought was huge. The main strategy, this is from the FT, the main strategy will have a heavy focus on Britain's slow-moving and long-awaited nuclear power program. The country's existing reactors are due to be retired by 2035, with construction on just one large plant, Hinkley Point C, already underway. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was expected to give the go-ahead to the strategy documents at a cabinet away day in the West Country on Friday. And so, uh, you know, the creation of a regulated asset-based model will be key to delivering a future fleet of large atomic power stations. So the United Kingdom is thinking of it. Now, let's talk about Germany. We're there. We're in the process of decommissioning their nuclear reactors because meltdowns equal bad. Bad. Meltdown's bad. No meltdown's good. Meltdown's bad. Uh, basically, you know, they were had safety concerns. But now professors from Oxford, a little community college out there uh, over the pond, Harvard, another small junior college here, very uh, unknown university, and American University alongside of a group of environmentalists recently asked for Germany to postpone shutting down their nuclear reactors. And they wrote, there is still time to set matters straight. Germany could yet alter course and adjust its order of priority to exit coal before nuclear. All it would take is the stroke of a pen to reinstate the former life extensions agreed in 2010 to the plants between 2030 and 2036. So in Germany, they're saying, hey, there's no need to shut down these nuclear plants immediately. Uh, it kind of turns out that nuclear power isn't quite as bad as coal. Ah, they're getting it. In Poland... The nation's second largest copper producer is looking to turn to nuclear power and will be building four small modular reactors for alternative energy. In Japan, Yamaro Kono, the administrative reform minister and the most likely candidate to replace Yoshidehide Suga, I fucked that up, but who cares, has done a 180 on nuclear power as well. For Japan, another major country, and finally, in France, President Emmanuel Macron recently admitted that small nuclear reactors would be a part of his country's move toward clean energy. So now you have this big widespread adoption that I think is taking place a lot quicker than I had originally anticipated. And this could really put some type of sustained bid underneath of uranium. In addition... Then it was revealed that there was an entire other uranium trust that could wind up being as large as $500 million that will be coming to the market that will be bidding for uranium alongside of Sprott. Zero Hedge wrote, The world's largest producer and seller of natural uranium, Kazatomprom, whatever the fuck they are called, responsible for providing some 40% of global primary uranium, today announced that it has taken a page out of the Sprott Trust, and will participate in a physical uranium fund. The fund will hold physical uranium as a long-term investment with initial purchases totaling $50 million. At the second stage, the fund is expected to raise capital of up to $500 million. So that's about a third of the size of the Sprott Fund now, if my memory serves me correctly. And it probably doesn't, so do your research elsewhere. Then there was a headline that China... 
uh, wants more nuclear power. That was Tuesday. Uh, and so I wanted to just talk about that for a second and why I saw it to be obvious that China would want to move to nuclear power. While there has been plenty, and this I wrote about on my blog here on uh, October 19th. Uh, this is from my blog, just a small section. While there's been plenty of focus and global skepticism about China's use of coal to generate power, this appears to be one of the first major headlines suggesting that Beijing is considering nuclear as a replacement. This makes tons of sense for China, where the CCP is likely far less interested in the optics and virtue signaling of green energy, which of course is what we're doing here in the U.S., because one windmill in a field isn't working, because they simply don't care what the world thinks. So if you need further proof of that, you can look at China's coal power generation uh, over the last 20 years, which has gone up uh, while the rest of the world has been working to reduce uh, coal and add renewables. So I wrote, in other words, Xi Jinping is less likely to want to fuck around with wind and solar power, relying on the hope that the wind blows and the sun shines each day, then he'll want to simply provide his company, his country with power and shut the rest of the world up as quickly as possible. Nuclear, of course, is that quick and easy solution for the country because it allows them to deflect criticism about emissions while generating the power it so desperately needs immediately. It checks the two boxes for them immediately, and there's no left versus right argument about nuclear over there and Fukushima. It's like a unilateral fucking decision over there, and he just says nuclear is the obvious solution, so that's what we're going to do, and I am betting that all of these other countries fall in line and, uh, you know, kind of go down that same path. So... China doesn't really care about the rest of the world's approval. And that's why I'd expect them to possibly implement nuclear even quicker than other first world countries. So maybe China will even take the lead here. Regardless, if you look at a historical chart of uranium, it is still near all time lows. And it's going to take a lot more time for more supply to come online. And it's going to happen at higher prices. And so for that reason, I am long uranium. Uh, URA, CCJ are uh, things that I own. So full disclaimer, I'm long uranium. I have options in those names and, uh, you know, that's it. If uranium goes up, I'll make money. If it goes down, I'll lose money. Speaking of going up, I wanted to take one last second to touch back on an article that I wrote. Uh, let's just see. Back when the Chinese stocks, Chinese tech stocks were absolutely getting uh, shithoused, I wrote about a couple of names that I wanted to buy, uh, one of which was Tencent Music. And uh, and I added to that while it was in the sixes. And I wrote about that, and that's now at 850. So I just wanted to touch on that, but I can't find the thing that I wrote, so it doesn't matter. The point is Tencent is very close to the Chinese government, which is why I prefer them as an investment. You know, if you're going to buy on the dip, uh, the Chinese tech dip. I like the 10 cent name. You know, the stock's 52 week high is something like $32. Kerastale was a buyer at $15 and slapped a $20 target on it. You know, we got the chance to buy it at six. It's eight fifty. Um, I still own it. Uh, I like the name very much, but that was one that I had written about, uh, and said that I was adding while it was in the sixes. So if these little trade nuggets interest you, um, you can get these things in more real-time fashion because I, you know, I only do a podcast like once a week, um, but I am writing almost every day now on my blog. Uh, and not all days it's about finance. Some days it's about politics or it's about whatever I want. Um, but I try to put up new content every day. 
And so if I don't cover it on a podcast, it gets covered there. And that's where I talk a little bit more about my portfolio and some things that I own. Uh, But disclaimer, please read all the disclaimers. Again, I'm not a financial advisor. Don't take my advice on anything. And I am the fuck out for now. All right, fools. See ya. Peace. Oh, by the way, the link to my podcast is in my podcast description. Peace. I mean the link to my blog. Fuck, 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 fuck. Bye.